I'd like to acknowledge the Darul Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which this has been written and recorded. I wish to pay my respects to the elders past and present, and send my apologies for the continuing atrocities that have taken place to the land and people. Then as always, I'd just like to start by saying welcome to the Penguin Sage. We are fighting hard to become one of the top names in the Penguin podcasting game, and as such, every listen counts, so thank you. And with that, on to the podcast. Welcome to James Harden and the Downfall of Capitalism, Part 3, Hitting the Freeway. We are speedily approaching the end of this essay, so to put everyone out of their misery, I will try my best to streamline this final chapter and make it as fast and tight as possible. So, to get right to it, the random topic that has been specially selected for us today is, drumroll please, game theory. After my waffling on about the majesty of sport and how games can mirror the economic and social realities of our life, it might come as a surprise to some when I say, I really don't like game theory. Not even because it's wrong, per se, but because I think it ruins the game. Game theory is meta. Simple as that. And ask any true gamer, any real athlete. Deep down, they know that winning because of meta-knowledge doesn't count. If you look over at my screen to shoot me in COD, or step under my ankle because you know I turned it earlier in the game, you didn't beat me in the game. All you've done is, well, ruined it. You've killed the fun and the point of competition. To me, game theory breeds this mentality of meta, where the focus is no longer on the game, it's about you. And isn't that kind of sad, where all you care about is the edge you can acquire for yourself, especially when that attitude is applied to life as a whole? I mean, not to get philosophical on everyone, but... What are you really getting an edge for? What's the end goal? To be the most powerful, the wealthiest, the most loved? I know this might all seem a bit reductive, and I know there's a lot of special social game theory that looks to maximise happiness, but even the noble goal of happiness can become poisoned when it is centred on the self. For if your goal ends with the self, we open up a lot of room for justification as just to how we can get there. Many people, who knows possibly even myself, don't really understand what game theory is. So to help explain it, I'm going to use two of the simplest and most commonplace examples, the prisoner's dilemma and the duel, and then once everyone has a grip on the basic understanding, I'm then going to explore the practical application of game theory in sports through its implementation in poker and in basketball, and we'll hopefully tie it all back around by exploring its use in economics, including the economic impact it has in the NBA. To help me do this, I will also be examining some ideas by professional thought person Simon Sinek. So, unless there are any objections, let's get started. Game theory is ultimately about figuring out what the best action is, and or when to take it. This is often described by either trying to find a dominant strategy, in which no matter what strategy your opponent employs, you still have the best chance of winning, or by discovering the optimal time to take an action. To agree with my game theory aficionados, this does have an obvious appeal to it. Being able to perform the best action is definitely, I mean, a good thing. The contention comes with, however, how do we figure out what the best action is? And that answer can get quite tricky depending on what game we're playing. But let's dive into our first example to decipher how a game theorist might attempt to answer such a question. Imagine you were being transported back in time and have found yourself in the Wild West. Unwittingly, you offend the barkeep and he challenges you to a duel. The rules are simple. You both take out your pistols and are given one round each. You then have to walk 50 paces away from each other, while an onlooker arbitrates. On their first count, you may choose to either shoot your gun and try to hit the barkeep, or take a step forward, making your next shot easier. After your decision, the keeper is given the same choice. 
This plays out until one of you chooses to shoot, but there is a catch. If you take your shot and miss, the keep is able to walk as close to you as he wants before he shoots. Thus, the question arises, when should you shoot? Do you wait for the barkeep to shoot and hope he misses? Do you shoot early because you grew up spotlighting on a farm? Or do you get to your 50 paces and run away because this whole thing was a big misunderstanding? Alright, the third option doesn't exist. But it's an interesting question all the same, and one that a game theorist would say has a definitive answer. They would say that there is a definitive optimal count at which your chance of hitting reaches a certain threshold versus your opponent's, and that it is on this exact count that you should shoot. Personally, I would agree, and say that there is a way to step back and assess the probability of you hitting the barkeep against the probability of them hitting you, plus one step as you move forward. And off that you can figure out an optimum spot for you to shoot. In fact, I mean, to be honest, it doesn't really matter if I agree or not. There is quite literally an optimal point. For this exact problem, it would potentially be pretty hard and, you know, possibly involve some complicated graphs to gauge the probabilities of my shooting versus the average ability of a human living in those times. But, I mean, it does exist. However, if you allow me to simplify the equations quickly, it becomes very easy. If we could say that everyone in the bar, including you and the barkeep, knew how good both of you were at shooting at each distance, then the equation becomes doable even for someone as simple as me. And it would go something like this. If X believes that the next turn Y will shoot, then X should shoot if the probability of X hitting is greater than the probability of Y missing after they step forward. So shoot when PX brackets H is greater than 1 minus PY brackets H minus 1. To simplify this further, we have to add the probability of y missing to each side, making the equation shoot when px brackets h plus py brackets h minus 1 is greater than 1. And there we have it. Game theory. Now all we have to do is plug in the probabilities that we assumed everyone knew, and you can figure out which step is the optimal one to shoot on. This whole exercise is a classic example of a zero-sum game, which is a fancy way of saying that the exact amount gained by one player is lost by the other. For if you win in this thought experiment, you gain one count of murder and your opponent loses one life. I hope to think that game theory can be used pretty efficiently, if not perfectly, in what I'm going to term closed zero-sum games. One of the greatest real-world examples of this is modern poker. Poker itself is a zero-sum game, basically because all the money lost by an opponent is gained by you or by another opponent, or vice versa. It was also known as an imperfect information game as at any time, you don't have all the information at the table, such as what your opponent's hand is. The most basic way that a poker player tries to counter the presence of this unknown information, while maximising their potential profit, is through the use of ranges. To explain this as quickly as I can, a range is a pre-established system for how you will play the various hands you were dealt versus the other hands. For example, 7-2 offsuit would always be in your fold range, as it is the lowest cards you can get without having a chance at a straight. Pocket jacks, on the other hand, might be in both your call and raise range, which is to say maybe 25% of the time you min-raise, 45% of the time you half-pot raise, and 30% of the time you limp in. This variation in play allows you to not be predictably or easily read, and also gives options based on positioning of your opponents and their own ranges. But why do professionals bother to spend countless hours learning about complicated ranges when they could spend the time learning how to read people? Well, because, just like many things, poker is about the long game. While reading someone is important, knowing the odds of your hand will mean that no matter what the others have, you won't be leaving money on the table. 
Sure, anyone can run well, they can get lucky and win a few hands, but to win in the long run, you have to stay disciplined and try to play as close to game theory optimal as you can. Let me give you an example of why this is so important with one of the most controversial hands in poker. Say you have ace-king of diamonds in a game of six, and you're on the button, which is the last one to act besides the blinds. Everyone before you has simply called. Some people strongly believe in this position you should follow suit and just limp in. They would say, look, ace-king suited is a pretty nice hand, but it's still a draw hand. You should call so that you can get as many people in the pot as possible, then try to get some action if you do hit your hand. One issue of this, though, is that while you might have all six people individually beat preflop, the more people you let in, the worse pot odds you get in. After all, the more people who are in the pot, the higher chance that one of those other six people could also hit their hand with a low pair or a straight or any combination. Plus, if you try to bet post-flop, the only people calling you will be those who hit a hand or will be on a draw that possibly beats yours. This is why others believe the best play is to raise preflop and either take all the money that was already in the pot or take your chances against pairs or lower suited connectors. But, again, let's not take my word for it, this is where game theory comes in, or more specifically, expected value. Expected value is a term that represents the amount of monetary return you could expect if you played a hand over and over again in poker. So to take our ace-king suited hand for example, I am able to simulate a game in which every player has a hand to be expected in a call range. Let's take this for example, so we have ace-king of diamonds, another player has pocket twos, one has jack and nine suited, one has king queen not suited, seven six suited, and ten eight suited. As we can all see, or well, I can see, you're about to hear, pre-flop, our ace-king suited combo has 21% chance of winning, which is pretty good. A one-fifth chance of winning against six people puts you in the black, or if you wanted to properly evaluate your EV, we could do it like this. Say the big blind is $20, and everyone is limped in, that means you have paid $20 at a 79% chance of losing, while you have a 21% chance of winning $100 at the time of preflop. So 0.21 times 100 equals 21, and 0.79 times 20 equals 15.8. All we have to do now is minus our expected losses from our expected gains, 21 minus 15.8, leaving us with an EV of plus 5.2. Now an expected return of $5.2 on a $20 bet is Certainly a solid bet, and definitely worth it. But is it the optimal play? To find out who was right, we now have to compare this EV to what we could expect if we got called on a pot raise bet. To do this, I took out a random allotment of cards that would fall into a standard pot call, and applied the same formula against every reasonable combination that would call a pot raise. For those of you who might dispute my results, the hands I chose to run were all ace-king hands, Ace-Queen suited, Ace-Jack suited, Ace-Ten suited, King-Queen suited, King-Jack suited, King-Ten suited, King-Queen-Jack suited, and all pocket pairs from pocket aces to tens. In each scenario, I assume we'd only be called by the small blind, making our bet $90, and our potential return $170. After adding up all the results, the average EV was plus 57.45. Which, to be fair to each side, more context does have to be placed when fully evaluating the positions. For one, there is a strong argument to be made that the ratio of the EV against your bet is just as important as the raw numbers, as it's kind of basic logic that the higher numbers that you're betting with, the more potential return you will have. There are also far worse situations that you can get yourself into when raising with ace-king, such as being committed against pocket aces, which have you completely dominated and will win 94% of the time. However, I do believe that the risk is well worth it, as outside of pocket aces, you're essentially always in a positive EV, 
even when facing a hand like Pocket Queens, which has a 54% chance of beating your ace-king. Thanks to the money floated in by everyone else, you are still technically up, as 0.54 times 90 minus 0.46 times 170 is still plus 29.6. However, I've also stacked the odds more than slightly in the favour of raising a base king by assuming that only one person will call and had them in the small blind which maximises the amount of money in the pot and have placed you in the perfect position for this sort of bet. So, look, alas, now I've nodded to my bias and done nothing about it, I will digress. While I personally find it interesting how efficient you can get with astute understanding and probabilities, that isn't exactly the point of this podcast. And I did say I would say on topic, so... Alright, look, actually, before I do move on, I'd caution anyone about actually using this as how to play an ace-king. This was just a superficial evaluation to explain the use of game theory. There is far more advanced programs to figure out a true EV if you are genuinely interested. And look, from what I've seen of most modern poker players, they actually aren't a fan of betting with Ace King, seen as a more overvalued by like old gunslingers. But anyway, that's a conversation for Daniel Negreanu's comment section, or maybe Doug Polk after the reason heads up. But despite my oversights and analysis, what everyone should agree on is that game theory has fundamentally changed the landscape of poker and led to objectively better play. Talking about game theory promoting better play, it looks like I found a perfect time to zip back to the NBA and James Harden. Yes, he still exists, and the sneaky bastard has wriggled his way back into my talk. Poker might be the most rife example of game theory in sport, but it has certainly managed to push his way into the NBA as well. There is contention about where true game theory first crept into the league. You could argue team like Steve Nash's 7 second or less sons pushed the analytical approach to the game, or perhaps it crashed through with the infamous 76ers process. But whatever its humble beginnings may be, for this essay I'll be focusing on the current crown jewel of NBA analytics, the Bucks. What, were you expecting someone else? Maybe like James Harden? No, no, no. The Bucks are the crown jewel of the modern NBA. Through a miraculous story surging to the top of the NBA on the back of a three-throw getting stud and three-point shooting cast. In the 17-18 season, the Bucks were a meddling team with a slightly disappointing 44-38 and season record. But on the back of the bursting star Giannis, they were still able to make the playoffs and push the eventual conference finalist Celtics. However, they couldn't get through them, as when the playoffs came around, the Celtics were able to limit Giannis, closing his driving lanes and halting both his transition scoring and playmaking. Despite a great series from Mr. You-don't-pay-me-to-play-defense Jabari Parker, we could all see the Bucks were missing something. Well, enter Mike Budenholzer, the team-centric ex-Atlanta coach who focused on transition and threes. Just two years later, and they've already become the undisputed best regular season in the team, with last year having an outstanding 56-17 and 17 record on one of the highest point differentials in the history of the NBA. Do we really think that it is just coincidence that this all happened after their three-point rate skyrocketed? In the 17-18 season, 29.73% of the Bucks' field goal attempts came from three. In the 19-20 season, that was 42.78%. Only issue with making a direct correlation is that in the 17-18 season, the Bucks were the ninth team in offensive rating. In the 19-20 season, they were eighth. So what did all the three-point shooting do? Well, I'd argue it helped their defense. It tricked other teams into a fast-paced three-point shootout in which they try to match the Bucks shot for shot. The issue with this strategy? That the Bucks just so happen to have the greatest at-rim finisher and three-throw drawer in the league. Thus, meaning that if you enter a three-point and layup competition with them, Giannis is going to stealth kill you with dunks and three-throws. This dichotomy and their great interior defense 
is why for two years the Bucks have been at the top of the league in allowing three-pointers defensively, and have also by far been the number one rated defense. But let's not completely strawman this. People are probably right to have objections. Allowing lots of threes and playing at a fast pace doesn't directly mean that you should have a good defense in the league. It can account for the point differential, but come on, threes are still worth more than twos. Surely there is far more to this defensive system that I am stating. Well, yes. You are right to think that the Bucks system is a bit more complicated than tall man stand in front of basket, let stupid people shoot from far away. However, as much as threes over twos is a fun mantra, it has less to do with the modern success than you might think. In my own personal basketball opinion, I do believe that the threat of threes is crucial to allowing strong offense to flow into space. However, the critical part of that is threat. I went through the last eight years of data comparing every team's record, offensive rating, and three-point rate attempt. And as far as I could assess, there was no significant correlation between the latter and first two categories. Now, if anyone wants to take the man hours to go through and do all that, or come up with an algorithm to go through and do that, then bravo. I shall concede the point with dignity. But until then, the fact is that the highest metric for a good team, just like the Bucks, is a good defense. My high school coach would be so proud to hear that. Defense truly does win championships. But before I move on, let's not forget the other side of that adage. Offense sells tickets. This is where James Harden does truly come back into our conversation. Because unfortunately for him, offense isn't selling those tickets anymore. Over the 1920 season, ratings across the NBA was down 8.55%, and viewership was down 9.36%. This wouldn't be such a big issue if it wasn't an extended trend. The average ratings for the NBA in the US peaked in 2011-12, the year LeBron made his monumental, ground-shaking decision to go to Miami, and of course the last year that Harden was in Oklahoma. But ever since then, the ratings have been on a slow trend down, and a trend that isn't becoming so slow anymore. During the most recent playoffs, the average television audience was down 36.94%. Now, there could be many factors for this. Going against other sports like the NHL, viewers frustrated by the Black Lives Matters demonstrations, the odd circumstance of the bubble, two of the Heat's starting five getting injured in the first game of the finals, Curry and the Warriors just not being there, and the changing style of the game are all factors. While I think it's unquestionable that all of these factors did play a part in the recent drops, the total trend has come to a point where we have to start looking at the increased three-point rate as to why people aren't tuning in over more as a whole. As I talked about in the last segment, it has been no secret that the NBA has changed its rules to help make the game more offensive, and in their minds, more exciting. However, I think they have missed what made such amazing offensive feats so spectacular. The defense. It may not be the most efficient play, but it's exhilarating to watch Iverson dive at the basket, throwing up an off-balance overhead floater above two people who are a foot taller than him. It may not produce as many points per possessions, but it's inspiring to see Kobe dissect tough physical defense through splendid footwork, positioning, and look when all else fails, an athletic fadeaway. On the inverse, while you can appreciate a Donovan Mitchell or Jamal Murray 50-point game, there is only so many open threes and uncontested floaters that you can watch until it just kind of gets repetitive. Look, throwing shade at the current players might be one of the more controversial takes, but as with Harden, I'm not trying to ding their ability or skill as players. It's about the reality of the game that they're in, and the unfortunate thing is that reality is failing. To prove my point, I've made a quick comparison between increasing average three-point rate and the NBA decreasing viewership. I should mention the numbers used for the television viewership are the combination of regular season gaming millions from the ABC, TNT, ESPN, and NBA TV. 
Over the last eight years, the average three-point rate in the NBA has risen from 24.35% to 38.17%, meaning an increase of 1.73% a year. In the inverse, from 2012-13 season to the 2017-18 season, the NBA viewership has dropped an average of 262,000 viewers per game a year. Unfortunately, even with my great Sherlock skills, I have not been able to track down the precise numbers for the last two years because I'm not paying a subscription for that shit. But from every report I've seen, both seasons have followed the overall trend of lower viewership, with the 2020 playoffs hitting absolute rock bottom. Now, I'm sorry to my game theorists, as there is no definitive way to make my point on this, but as a great Australian hero once said, it's about the vibe of the thing. I personally feel, and from numerous tweets, reddit posts, and conversations, I've accrued the sense that people are frustrated with the constant threes, flopping, and fast-paced shots. The game feels more like an algorithm than it does a sport or artwork, the winner being chosen by the fate of the rim as opposed to the skill of the better team. Again, perhaps this all ties into my own romantic view of sport and philosophy, but it makes me ponder why we so strongly value freedom if we're going to use it to regress to the same strategy. The game is at its best when every outing is an exploration, a diverse tapestry that could take us in any direction at any time. But if I can sit down and watch game after game, knowing every shot that the teams want to get and how they're going to try to get it, then what's the point in watching? It is just expecting a coin flip at that point to see if the corner three goes in or not. This isn't some comparison to the 80s either, I'm not trying to bring back the bad boys or grind it out Knicks. This is the last eight years, and it's in that stretch that the game has fundamentally changed. Each year might have been just a small increment, but the difference between having 24% of your shots being threes and 38 is immense. So immense that back in the 2012-13 season, not a single team was over the average attempt rate we see today. Heck, back in the 2015-16 season, no team was over the average we see today, and that was prime Golden State. The unfortunate truth is that repetition is boring. It diminishes the dazzling effects of skill and makes the games mundane which is why the Rockets are such a hated team. It almost seems fake to say out loud, but over the last two years, they have averaged over 50% of their attempts from the three-point line, which in a sense is a spectacle to have over half your shots come from three, but it's one that most people, they want to follow from afar, to theorize at and gawk at the numbers, but not actually watch. I have a secret to share. I purposely chose to look at poker in this section because I enjoy the narrative of basketball regressing to gambling. Now, I mainly did this because, like any good Australian, I'm a degenerate. But, in my defence, it also isn't entirely wrong to spread this narrative. When the Rockets realised that they were worse than the Warriors, the KD remix, they tried to counteract this imbalance by increasing the level of randomness within the game, effectively hoping that they could get lucky when they played. Well, 27 missed threes in a row later, and that didn't exactly work out for a championship. However, they did manage to build a regular season beast. This was because, and what most teams seem to have not realised, the Rockets were able to stabilise their offence with James Harden ISOs, meaning that no matter what happens in the game, they have a base level of offensive efficiency that is usually higher than the other teams. I haven't done as much analytical research as the Rockets front office has, but personally I think the addition of randomness doesn't fit the NBA playoff format. This is because the playoffs consist of four individually contained rounds, so over a season your odds may balance out. But to me it seems to logically carry on that the more random you make the game, the more chance you have of being unlucky in one of those small sample size rounds. And that is not even to mention the inefficiencies with the extreme small ball lineups. I know increased pace in threes can give you an edge, but I refuse to believe that they can overcome being out-rebound by 20 rebounds a game. Again, I'm sure they've broken down the numbers, 
but that is essentially starting with an 8 point deficit, which is an absurdly high number. For an example, the Bucks, who just had one of the greatest regular seasons of all time, had a point differential of plus 10. So to start down 8 points is one hell of a handicap. Plus, as someone who has essentially stolen the Rockets' method by plugging Giannis in as a 3-0 getting stabilizer, I'm counting the Bucks as another prime example for why this style of play doesn't work perfectly in the playoffs. One other point I would like to make while we're on the topic of threes ruining the game is how stupid it makes some of these games seem. The fast-paced three-point revolution has allowed for some of the craziest comebacks to happen in the history of the NBA, such as Toronto's 30-point comeback in the second half against the Mavs last year or the Kings' 37-point comeback against the Nets two years ago. These are made possible due to the increased fluctuation of points and scoring potential, which are introduced by the increased pace and the increased threes. And what I find incredible is that teams and players seem to stick with this jacking up threes mentality even when it isn't working, or when you need to conserve a lead. So sure, in the long run and over a season, your average may increase, but in a five-minute stretch needing to conserve a four-point lead, throwing up shots when you're cold is not a good option. But okay, let me give you a concrete example of what I'm talking about. I was watching a Portland vs. Chicago game the other day, on the 6th of January 2021, if anyone wants to check it. In it, Portland came out blistering hot, put up a bunch of threes, and ended up the first quarter up by 18 points. They then kept playing alright through the opening of the second quarter and got up 47-27. to From this 20-point lead, the Portland Trailblazers, who had just scored 37 points in the opening quarter, proceeded to not score a single point for 5 minutes and 53 seconds, allowing the Bulls to slowly crawl their way back into the game and make it a 7-point game. Now I don't know how their coach wasn't losing his mind, because it is literally inexcusable for a professional organisation to not score a point for 6 minutes, but clearly he didn't talk to them much or care about it, because here's the kicker, they still ended up the quarter up by 9, kept leading throughout the rest of the game, until the 6.36 mark of the 4th quarter where they completely collapsed again. So to give you a prime example of the absurdity I'm talking about, here is every Portland possession over the last 7 minutes of that game. McCollum turnover. Lillard missed 3. McCollum made 3. McCollum missed 3. Anthony made 3. Lillard missed 3. McCollum missed 3. Covington missed 3. Covington missed 3. McCollum missed 3. Lillard fouled on a 3-point attempt. Covington missed 3. Lillard fouled because he fell down and the defender ran over him. Lillard made 3. Anthony missed three, and that was the game. One turnover, 12 three-points attempts, and two trips to the line, either because they were shooting a three or because someone accidentally fell over. And that, my dear kidlets, is how you let a superior team lose to the Chicago Bulls despite being up by 20 points. With the real issue in this entire sequence is that no one seems to notice it is an issue. Beyond aesthetics, it literally isn't smart basketball, yet we have teams doing it every day, even in top situations with the best coaches, i.e. the Celtics' fourth-quarter collapse in Game 6 against Miami. In fact, just because I have my blood boiling, let's run through their last seven minutes, which, to remind everyone, started at 96 all. Walker made one out of two three throws. Tatum made three. Tatum missed three. Tatum made layup. Walker missed three. Tatum turnover. Walker missed three. Tatum missed three. Smart missed three. Tatum missed a technical three throw. Brown missed three. Brown missed layup, Walker turnover. Now, at this point, there's 2.30 left and Miami is already up by 14, so the game is over, so I'll stop here. But it is insane that in the most important four-minute stretch of their season, the Celtics, who were realistically the only shot at challenging the Lakers, went 1-3 from the line, 
One of seven from three, with two turnovers and two missed layups to their credit. Miami, on the other hand, worked the ball around the perimeter, trove and took their opportunities, and thus went five of seven from the line, six of six from two, and one of one from three. Now, look, I can't exactly ask everyone to shoot 100% from the field, which is why I'm willing to admit that. I'm sure there was some bad defense and poor luck mixed into the Celtics' downfall. However, to me, it seems very simple. That if you're on a cold stretch and can't buy a bucket, don't keep jacking up quick shots from the top of the key and go one of seven from three. But okay, before I give myself a third aneurysm, I'm going to move along, as my real issue with Mori Ball comes not because of its possible tactical shortcomings, but because of its aesthetic effect on the game. I have gone on and on about Harden's ability to draw fouls and his reliance on superstar calls, and what most commentators miss is that it is this area of his game which is the true linchpin of Mori Ball. What Daryl Murray discovered and has religiously implemented is that most important aspect of winning in the NBA is having a star, not threes. It is the same reason why the 76ers threw away three years of their existence as a professional organization to get draft picks, and why every organization has become completely obsessed with clearing cap space for the next big agent. Like any good game theorist, Murray realized that what is important is not what tactic you are using, but how optimally you can implement that tactic. Thus, thanks to the NBA's love of stars, at the pinnacle of each style, you need a James Harden. Now, to his credit, Murray did manage to squeeze everything possible out of the Harden formula, and even picked up on the fact that the best shot in the game wasn't a three-pointer, but instead getting fouled on a three-pointer, which, unfortunately for me and everyone else who wants to watch basketball, is why Harden leans so heavily on his three-point step back. Because he knows, thanks to the gather set rules crossed with landing space, either you have to give him a good enough look at the three, or you have to take the risk of fouling him, making Harden's game the epitome of this repetitive and boring style. Now, repetitive and boring as it may be, even I can't deny that it is effective. Thus, the NBA being the copycat league it is, we now see this trend copy and pasted across the rest of the organizations. Which gets me to my real point about Harden and game theory. Being able to justify an action just because it's good for you is a dangerous precedent to set. It makes sense, so does a lot of capitalist theory, when you can assume that everyone starts from an equal position of opportunity. But when we begin to enter into reality, to separate society based on stardom, wealth or class, what becomes good for those on top all of a sudden can become warped. This is why I say game theory works in a closed system. It works when a game has a singular, quantifiable aspect or goal, but when that goal starts to become inflated and complicated, like a team trying to draw in viewership instead of wins, well, all of a sudden the methods get... messy. Because game theory can show us how to get something, but can never tell us if we should get it, or why we should try to achieve this. And unfortunately for the majority of our lives in the social realm, these are the questions we need to answer. So, while I do think game theory can work for certain aspects of a game, I don't think it functions well when applied holistically to a society. To help me explain my thoughts, I'll use the first famous thought experiment from game theory, the prisoner's dilemma. The basic version of the prisoner dilemma goes as such. There are two criminals who are being interrogated for a crime. If neither of them talks, they will each serve one year in prison. If criminal A gives information on criminal B, and criminal B remains silent, then A will have no prison time, and B will get sentenced to four years. The same goes for if B talks and A is silent. If both criminals talk, they will each serve two years. From here, the game is simple. Do you talk or not? 
Mathematically, the rational choice is to betray your partner, as that offers a greater reward than cooperation does. However, as has been well documented by psychologists, the majority of individuals choose to stay silent and cooperate with their partners. Now, is this because we're all just smooth-brained idiots? Or is it because in human nature, we naturally care for those around us? Funny enough, in game theory, this weak-minded care gives you further incentive to rat out your mate, as you can infer that you personally have an even higher ratio of positive outcomes because they probably won't turn on you. Often in The Prisoner's Dilemma, and other prominent game theory examples, we see this sort of logic play out, that the rational people will help themselves, with game theory asserting that the more you play the game, the more the choices curve to this sort of personal gain. Thus, we should preempt the curve and act for personal gain early on. The issue I have with this sort of simple thought experiment is that they very often don't account for the broader picture in which our reality exists. It treats rational behaviour as self-fulfilling, when I would argue that any rational human would understand the bearings emotions play in our lives. How could such a game quantify the quality of a one-year sentence over five years of sleepless, guilt-ridden nights because you betrayed your friend? In order to make the best pure decision for the sentence, the game must strip away the more convoluted and uncalculatable aspects of our life and focus solely on the numbers. Perhaps I'm overthinking this, but personally, I don't want to be complicit in building a new narcissistic world. I believe that it is a dangerous stance to intrinsically tie rationality to self-interest and logic, thus stripping away our most human characteristics, our emotions. Many of you will undoubtedly be saying that this is an unfair argument. It is a thought experiment after all, a mere mathematical allegory in its simplest form. You can't theorise on external effects that are outside of its scope. Well, to you I say, no. If you want to create an ideological system of action, then I'm sorry, but its representations have to be able to live up to a certain standard, especially when it is these exact external oversights that are the downfall of it in the real world. I can excuse selfish playing poker, that is a closed game that only affects those at the table, but to bring that ethos into the larger economy is willfully ignorant short-sightedness. As much as a modern theory might like to propagandize it, the economy actually isn't about personal gain, is it about societal convenience, creating a system that is best suited to helping the maximal amount of people in your community. That is the entire reason civilizations moved away from trade and towards money. Of course, a game theorist might argue that game theory doesn't hold an ethos, or an ethos of selfishness. It just allows us to see when that is the best option. But I would push back against that. If game theory truly doesn't have an underlying connection to the identity that rationality is an advancement of self, then what's it asserting? Because everything I've heard in this kind of area is nothing. It falls back on this broad sentiment that it's about finding the best action. But every system's about that. No system saying we want to produce the third best outcome. The whole point of a theory is not just to tell us how to achieve a goal, but what we should be trying to achieve. So either we can simply exchange game theory for a vague mantra of do your best champ, or we have to accept that it's normalizing self-serving action under the pretense of mathematics. Someone who might disagree with me is Simon Sinek, who himself is a proponent of economic game theory, which I find personally hilarious as he is a starch defender of the hardships millennial space, a contradiction that I'm all too happy to explore. Simon Sinek is a very popular YouTube video explaining the difference between an infinite and a finite game, and how an understanding of infinite games can help companies. A finite game is our standard sport. It has a set beginning and end, an agreed upon goal and rules, and a standard number of players. An infinite game, by contrast, 
has no beginning or end, and the goal is simply the perpetuation of the game. The economy is his example of an infinite game. The economy has no end or set amount of players, it is simply a big ball of numbers looking to perpetuate itself. Sinek theorises that companies shouldn't try to win against each other through the usual markers like quarterly income, as that isn't the game we're really playing. They should instead try to take the long-term view like Amazon or Apple, and simply try to perpetuate their existence in the game through investment and internal soul-searching, he seems to think. I have to admit, he does put a rather romantic spin on the whole thing, talking glowingly about their search for internal improvement and community growth. The issue is that this isn't really how realities work. Companies don't move beyond competition because they feel warm and fuzzy within themselves. They do it through aggressive expansion and investment into intellectual or physical property, up to the stage at which they can monopolise or more likely duopolize the market. Either or is very dangerous and not something which should be asked for, especially when the underlying reward for success is, again, personal gain. Look, I'm no capitalist, but ignoring competition and business sounds like a recipe for poor innovation and motivation at best, and acceptance of tyrannical capital at worst. This is honestly why, while the idea of democracy usually has its ideological ties to politics, I'd argue the ability to have democratic control over our commercial life is just as important. So, I'm sorry Simon, but for me to go to bed and think how Apple's executives are spending their days arguing over how to best help teachers, well, I'd have to already be dreaming. And this isn't baseless scepticism. Look at the companies who we could example as playing the infinite game. Amazon, Apple, Nike, McDonald's, Disney, News Corp? Facebook, Coca-Cola, Telstra, seeing anything in common? I'll give you a hint, it isn't their shared love of rainbows. To make my point for me, let's bring in Simon. Say, what is one of the biggest problems that is facing our younger generation? Quote, We have no age restrictions on this dopamine-producing device called social media or cell phones. It's the equivalent of throwing open the liquor cabinet and telling our young adolescents, I know this is a stressful time, try the vodka. End quote. Really? That's fascinating. Any other major challenges that you think hinder the next generation? Quote, Our younger generation isn't learning the coping skills and coping mechanisms to turn to another human being when they're struggling or stressed. They are trying to turn to social media or their cell phones. End quote. Couldn't agree more, Simon. But what about outside of technology? Well, it's kind of a connection, but I'd say impatience. Quote, They grew up in a world of constant gratification. You want to buy something, you go on Amazon. It shows up the next day. You want to watch a movie? You don't check movie times. You just log on and download it whenever you want to watch it. Heck, you want to go on a date? You didn't have to be like, hey, you just have to swipe right and you go on a date. So we have an insecure generation that doesn't have coping mechanisms that wants everything resolved and resolved now. End quote. Well, you're right, Simon. That seems like quite an issue. Surely that's the worst of it, though. Quote. The most egregious is environment. We're now taking this wonderful, smart, idealistic, ambitious, hard-working, good group of people that were dealt a bad hand, and we're putting them in a corporate environment that do not care about them as human beings. End quote. Gee whiz, that's a tough cluster of problems. Any idea on what corporations would be contributing to this climate? Nothing? That's alright, I'll take a stab. What about Apple, who has nurtured the need for instant gratification like no other? Or Facebook? who helped model Instagram after slot machines to induce this addictive dopamine loop you were talking so much about. You did manage to mention Amazon, although you might have left out how its business model is ravaging retail jobs, which are usually held by adolescent and young adults, attributing to a standard of unemployment and tax avoidance. 
It is truly incredible how someone who praises Apple for their business model, which has standardized making their own products unusable after a certain time to force new purchases, fails to see the connection they might have to all these problems. Now, I usually say I don't mean to attack people personally, but Simon is personally peddling this line to be able to sell his talks and books to both corporations and conflicted users at the same time, so I may as well call him out properly. But, to be fair and balanced, he is a good speaker and storyteller, so I'm not going to, you know, be too mean. And I haven't read his books as I don't wish to purchase them, so perhaps he has a far more developed understanding of all these contradictions. I just found it an interesting hypocrisy in his talks, and one that will always exist for as long as we allow selfish ideals such as game theory to rule economics at large. For a long time, economics has not been about country or county, but about those with wealth, becoming a tool for personal gain and ignoring the community it comes from. If you will allow me, this is all winding up, so I might as well dive into a quick anecdotal story while I still have the chance. Not too long ago, I was having lunch with a reasonably affluent man who was describing enviously his neighbour's car purchases. It turns out that every year his neighbour would buy two company cars, you know, the new Ferrari or Maserati, and they would just so happen to end up in his personal garage. He was laughing about how it was a great way to lower the company's income and avoid the higher tax bracket. I believe it jumps at $22 million in Australia. The only waste, of course, was that the man lived just five minutes away from his office, so he didn't even drive the cars. But apparently they looked great in his garage, so it did balance out. Maybe this is simple selfishness, pride and lust that will always exist. But to me, it reeks of game theory. It's figuring out the small edge you can gain, so that just like in poker, or in any Instagram algorithm, you can accrue as much money as possible in the long run. The issue is, winning doesn't just affect you. You gaining that small edge takes a million dollars out of the government budget. Maybe that million dollars could have set up a rural school, got new medical equipment, or fixed a road. Look, maybe it would have helped bail out a mining company or pay off military weapons. I'm not saying the government's choices are perfect, but I'd like the option. The lunch reminded me of a small thought experiment by contemporary philosopher Peter Singer. In it, Singer describes a relatively mundane circumstance. Maybe you're a big sneakerhead and you've just bought the new Air Jordans. You're feeling a little spicy today, so you decide you want to break them in and show them off on your favourite local walk. Heading down to the bay, you strut out your fresh kicks and plenty of envious onlookers... Look on. However, halfway through your walk, you see a young child drowning in the water. You don't have enough time to take your shoes off. You have to act right now. And so, Singer's question arises. Do you let the kid drown, or do you destroy your new shoes? The common answer is, yes, you would jump in and save the drowning child's life at the cost of your shoes. If this is your answer, Singer then poses the question. If you would sacrifice your shoes to save a child's life, why would you buy them when the slave labour to make them is contributing to killing a similar child? Or it doesn't have to be that extreme. Maybe they are made ethically. But shouldn't you spend that $300 to help save a child suffering from dehydration in another country? The experiment is used to explore how once something is outside of our sight and outside of our mind, we tend to stop viewing it as a problem or something we can help with. Suddenly it's an exterior problem completely out of our world. And so we can normalise and rationalise our actions as though we're doing the right thing. I worry that divisions of wealth can create the same effect in our own communities. Once you stop viewing the daily plights, it is natural to forget how your contributions can help them. Or, to put it in the world of the story, once you reach a certain level of wealth, you would no longer be walking on the public strip to show off your shoes. Your favourite area isn't the bay. It's your private lake or around your car collection. And you can walk down there for as long as you want, but you'll never see that child drown. A few years ago, 
in 2013, during what might have been the worst draft night in the modern NBA era, there was a not-so-small trade between the Boston Celtics and Brooklyn Nets. The new Nets owner was desperate to make a splash in the playoffs, and so like all good capitalists we've seen throughout this podcast, he sold out their future for a short-term push at the championship. And I do have to say, I know this is a random jump again, but this truly is the last one, so try to bear with me. The desperate move brought in a past-his-prime Paul Pierce, a very past-his-prime Kevin Garnett, and a soon-to-be-traded Jason Terry. In return, the Celtics got a nearly-out-of-the-league Gerald Wallace, some other role players, plus what I'm sure every true NBA fan will remember, three unprotected first-round picks. I'm not bringing this up to throw salt in the wound of the Nets, we all know about the injury woes of Darren Williams and the aging of Joe Johnson, which caused the collapse of the Nets' core unit, and let Boston use those picks to acquire Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, building one of the brightest futures in the league. Now, instead, I bring it up to talk about one of those long-lost role players, Keith Bogans. You see, at the age of 33, Keith was on his way out of the league. After four straight seasons of having a single-digit PER, it wasn't looking too good for our man to get another contract. But then, word came down the grapevine that Brooklyn needed a trade. So what, I'm sure you're asking. Boston wouldn't want an old, probably out of the league, Keith Bogans. Well, while that is true, for anyone who astutely pays attention to the CBA, you will know that if a team is over the tax level of the salary cap, then more or less you cannot bring in players who have a higher salary than those going out. Thus, why our soon-to-be-out-of-the-league Keith Bogans was gifted a $5.3 million a year salary. In fact, Fun fact for everyone, a player who has to have a multi-year contract for a team to be able to sell his bird rights in a trade, so he technically got a three-year $16 million deal, but the last two weren't guaranteed. Skirting the trade rules aside, I bring this up because this sort of transaction is a prime example of how out of touch the NBA is with reality. The owners have become so detached and absorbed in the world of the league that they can thoughtlessly throw around a $5.3 million salary just because they're stuck on a technicality. Keith Bogans quite literally won the lottery, because he was there. And while I'm sure it was good for him in the long run, I mean it was the biggest contract he ever received, this is someone who had previously earned $14 million over his nine-year career. Plus, from the two reasonably in-depth um, interviews I could find with him, it turns out he didn't even really enjoy his year. Even though he had a $5.3 million contract, Keith Bogans hated it because well, he's a professional basketball player. He wanted to play. And he just never got on the court. He had to pointlessly travel for a year. I mean, look, he was traveling in private jets to five-star hotels, so crimey river. But he had a year of his life wasted, worn away, because, well, I mean, it's $5.3 million. He had to say yes. So I guess what I'm saying is, could you imagine how much of a difference that money could have made to someone else's life? What if the Nets had gone down to one of their ticket workers or retail workers, and just change their life forever? What if they use that money to help pay for good clothes, or, I don't know, even housing for the countless of homeless who live around Brooklyn? Because, heck, that doesn't have to change one person's life. That can change ten people's lives, a thousand people's lives. I mean, $5,000 would change my life. And I'm sure it would change a lot of people who might be listening to this. And that's a tough pill to swallow when you think that the NBA is littered with stories like this with money thrown around and wasted because rich people want to spend it on their pet projects. Now look, if I was good at this, I could probably find a way to tie this all back to the current GameStop news story, but alas, I'm just a simple ape on my way to the moon. So, I don't know. I guess the tie-in is that whatever avenue we take, 
the parallels between sport and life are open for us all to see. I mean, heck, at the end of the day, just like life, the NBA is controlled by 22 billionaires, man. This is why I called sport a mirror. Sport isn't like most forms of art. Art is used to push a personal opinion or agenda, to challenge society and instigate change. Hell, this whole thing may not be capital A art, but I'm sure most of you can tell that I have a particular brand of political centricism that I'm trying to push. Unlike art though, sport is pure. Its performers are just like us, people navigating their lives, searching for success and purpose, and as such their dreams and hopes represent ours. So before I leave, I'd like to take a minute and share mine. The big elephant in the room, which I've sort of ignored, is NBA salaries. At the very beginning of this saga, I gawked at the million dollar salaries held down by university chancellors, and brushed off the fact that someone like James Harden is on a $38 million a year salary right now. Now a lot of people hate on sports stars for the sheer amount on their salaries, which I do get. Personally, I think they're very overinflated at the top and look, could probably be trickled down a bit more. But we can't ignore the reason why sports stars and specifically NBA players have such high salaries, and it's because they fought for it. The NBA has a very strong players association, or effectively a union, that has ensured they collectively see 50% of all the NBA profits. So to end this, as I promised, I'm not making some big socialist push or laying down theoretical rhetoric. I'm just saying, if you want to live like a baller, if you want to get paid like a baller, then you better join your union, man.